Well, today, friends, we are going to be in part two of a message series that I began last week, the very first Sunday of 2021. Today's message is the second part of it, and it's called, Who Are You Roped To? Who Are You Roped To? You know, last week we talked about high alpine, icy mountain climbing, and we noted that there were a number of dangers involved in that kind of mountain climbing. We noted, for example, that there were avalanches, that there were crevices, that there's altitude sickness. Um, you notice that when you get really high in, in alpine mountain climbing, above 26,000 feet or 8,000 meters, they call that the death zone. Why? Because the lack of oxygen can disorient a climber. Even the most experienced of climbers, it can disorient them. And many climbers have perished at that point. There are over 200 bodies of perished dead mountain climbers on that mountain of Mount Everest. Uh, people who did not make it either to the summit or back down from the summit when they were in the death zone. You know, if you look at a, a map today of Mount Everest, they have made many advances and sophistications in that mapping. And they've come up with these contour maps that are now available to help those mountain, Mount Everest climbers know just where the altitude is at any given place on the mountain. And I don't know if you knew this, but you don't just start at the bottom of Mount Everest and climb to the top. I mean, you couldn't do that anyway. But even if you start at the base camp, you cannot just go up to the base camp at 17,700 feet and say, okay, I'm going to camp here for the evening. And then first thing in the morning, we're going to climb all the way to the summit. First of all, it's another almost 12,000 feet of elevation. Second of all, the reason they put the base camp there at 17,700 feet is because over 18 or 19,000 feet, the human body actually enters into a state of decay. And above that altitude, life is not permanently sustainable. So you are putting yourself in a dangerous place to go higher than 18,000 feet for a period of time. And so the climbers, in order to reach the summit of Mount Everest at 29,000 feet, they have to acclimate themselves to the different altitudes. So a lot of climbers, they'll stay at the base camp just under 18,000 feet. They'll stay there, maybe make a day climb and come back to the camp, but they'll, they'll stay there for almost a month. Then they'll get to camp one at 20,000 feet and stay a couple, three days. They'll climb another thousand feet and stay a couple, three days. They'll climb to camp three and stay a couple days and then to camp four. Now, camp four is the critical camp because it is from camp four at 26,000 feet. Now the climber is ready to try to make the summit of Mount Everest. And that summit climb is anywhere from six to nine hours, even in good conditions. So it is a dangerous climb. Is it a difficult climb? And it is, uh, it is challenging. So friends, I, I bring up the analogy of mountain climbing and summiting Everest to use that in a spiritual sense because if you are going to commit yourself to following Christ, if you're going to leave your, quote, base camp and continue climbing on this journey of faith, it, then 
the way to be successful, the way that God designed you to be successful in that climb is to voluntarily rope yourself to other believers. Other believers who are committed to make the same climb alongside you. You can have a realistic spiritual map of what the terrain is like to head ahead of you to guide your steps. And it would be good to know that when the, tri when the trail that you're climbing, when it turns upwards steeply, or when you're near a dangerous crevice, or when there's a danger of a rock slide or an avalanche, it would be especially good to have on the right spiritual equipment and to be roped together to other committed believers. You know, I mentioned last week, it was 1953 that Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay, they were the two first climbers who successfully summited to the top of Mount Everest in 1953. But that certainly wasn't the first attempt to summit Mount Everest. There was another expedition back in 1924 with two really good climbers, Howard Somerville and Edward Norton. But here's what happened. I mean, that's why you never heard of their names because they, they didn't make it to the summit. Somerville became ill and then he stayed on the mountain, but he was just staying there resting. Norton kept going for the summit. He made it and kept climbing all the way to about 28,000 feet but it, came, it became obvious that his friend was hurting, so he stopped, he turned around to help his friend. This is what these climbers said about their experience. They said, the whole of the mountain is composed of slabs like the tiles on a roof and all sloped at much the same angle. It was not exactly difficult going, but it was a dangerous place for a single unroped climber. One slip would have sent me in all probability to the bottom of the mountain. And that's sort of implying to say, and not only to the bottom of the mountain, to my certain death. I, I wanna remind you as we're thinking about voluntarily roping ourselves together with other believers in 2021 and being it, doing the Christian life together, that the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of wisdom, gives us a great verse on how life is better when we choose to walk together with other believers. Look at, look at what the, uh, Solomon says. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. You know, I'll just pause and say, Lisa and I were walking along that Truckee River. We had a beautiful winter walk. The snow was all around us. It was, it was cold and icy, but it was beautiful last week. I was walking right next to Lisa and she, she had on her snow boots, but she hit a piece of black ice and her foot slipped and she reached out to grab my arm and it kept her from stumbling, it kept her from falling. That's what the advantage you have when you walk the path together. Also, Solomon says, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? See, this was before electric blankets, right? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, in his leadership study Bible, uh, a famous leadership guru, his name is John Maxwell, he recognized that leaders 
who choose to partner with other uh, leaders and go through life together and do ministry together, they have a healthy partnership. And there are advantages to this partnership. Number one, partners accomplish more. Solomon says they have a good return from their work. They can help each other succeed. Uh, maybe your, your partner, maybe your friend knows something that you don't know. Maybe they have experience in an area that you don't have. You can help each other succeed. Number two, partners complement each other. In verse 10, it says if one falls, the other can reach out and help. Number three, partners supply support and warmth for one another. In a world without central heat, friends, <laughs> that is significant. And then number four, partners give strength to each other. He's talking about a battle. And it's saying, you know, one person in a battle, you know, you might be fighting somebody in your front, but there may be somebody on your side or somebody in your back and you don't even see them. And like that quarterback with the blind side that goes back to pass, he doesn't even see that defender coming at him from behind. Boom, and he gets sacked. And you see that all the time in the NFL games. In a battle, it's better if you have somebody fighting with you and they say you can go back to back and you say, I got your back, you got my back, and they can stand and protect each other and ultimately win the fight. John Maxwell, he even has a leadership uh, phrase for people trying to climb Mount Everest. He says this, as the challenge escalates, the need for teamwork elevates. Let me say that one more time. As the challenge escalates, the need for teamwork elevates. So looking ahead to, 21, to, to 2021, friends, ask yourself that question. Who are you roped to? As you're leaving base camp, as you're embarking on the spiritual journey, beginning the ascent of 2021, who are you roped to? Because there are such advantages to being in community. People are better off when they have friends to help them with the challenges of life. In fact, here's the truth. The more difficult life is, the more valuable friends become. Let me say that again too. The more difficult that life is, the more valuable your friends become. There is strength in being together. Scripture is full of examples of people who were better off spiritually when they were roped to like-minded, committed friends. I mean, look at the example of Moses. He had Aaron. He had, he had Aaron, his brother, who became the first high priest. He had Joshua, who succeeded him and was his companion uh, through the last 40 years of his life for Moses. Paul had Barnabas on the first missionary journey. He had Silas and Timothy on the second missionary journey. He had another companion named Titus, whom he mentions in uh, the Galatian letter and in his letter to Titus. Uh, David, David had a number of friends to help him with his spiritual journey. His first major friend in life was Jonathan. And then David had his mighty men, names whom you would be really hard pressed to pronounce. Names like Joshab Bath. Bathhebeth, you try that one three times. Eleazar, Abishai, Benaiah. Benaiah, by the way, I love Benaiah. Benaiah is the famous mighty warrior who went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. 
You want to read about him? Read the Mark Batterson book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Jesus, even Jesus chose to rope himself together. And he had three of his closest friends out of the 12 disciples. He had Peter and James and John. Friends, all of these men of God, they succeeded in their spiritual climb. They overcame great obstacles and dangers. Why? Because they knew they were better together when they pursued God with other like-minded people. Remember last week that African proverb that we talked about. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Today, friends, I want to share, you, share with you a sad story. This is a story of a godly man who had an untimely finish in his life. This man was a godly leader, but near the end of his life, he endured an agonizing personal loss, the death of his wife. And sadly, this godly man, he chose to unrope himself from his companions for about three years, ended up being the last years of his life until the day of his death. Well, who am I talking about? The famous Christian author, one of the most famous Christian writers of our time, certainly in the last century. His name is C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis was single most of his life. Over 50 years of his life, he lived as a single man. He is the famous uh, person who began on, he became famous on British radio during World War II when he, when he uh, verbally, audibly uh, read his book to the British people. It was called Mere Christianity. He also wrote other famous books like The Screwtape Letters, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Great Divorce, uh, among many other books. Lewis had successfully summited many peaks in the Christian faith in his life. He was experiencing God's favor and God's blessing, but he lived most of his life as a single man. Well, in 1952, Lewis met an American divorcee. She was a Christian. She was actually, uh, in her younger years, she was an atheist. She was a communist. She got married. Her husband became an alcoholic and a philanderer. He cheated on her a, a number of times. They had a very difficult marriage. She ended up coming over to the UK and Great Britain to meet C.S. Lewis in 1952 and a great friendship form. Uh, later on, uh, her visa to the UK was set to expire. And so C.S. Lewis decided that he would marry her and let her become a naturalized uh, citizen in the U in the UK, he but he it, it wasn't for necessarily romance. It was a civil service. They did not live together. Uh, that was in 1956. But then something happened uh, in her home. Joy Davidman. She now uh, she tripped as she was walking in her living room and she fell down and she broke her leg. She was taken to the hospital and. And some tests were run, and she was diagnosed with advanced metastatic cancer. And so C.S. Lewis had been single all his life. He did not expect to find a woman and to fall in love with her at an older middle age. Uh, but they did fall in love. She was always in love with him. Uh, he decided that he would marry her in a Christian uh, wedding before God. And to do right by God. And so in March of 1957, Lewis married her. 
They were extremely happy together until, of course, Joy was diagnosed with metastatic cancer. And it was after a three-year painful battle, battle with the cancer that in July of 1960, Joy passed away. And she was just 45 years old. About Joy, Lewis wrote these words. She was my daughter and my mother, my pupil and my teacher, my subject and my sovereign. And always holding all these in solution, she was my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time, all that any man, friend, and I have had some good ones, has ever been to me, perhaps even more. Friends, when his wife Joy died, Lewis went into a deep grief and depression. After 52 years of being single, he had finally found the love of his life, but they were only married three years. And this tragedy made his spiritual footing with God slippery and rather precarious for a time. Lewis grieved alone and privately. He filled four notebooks with his thoughts and his openly emotional feelings of loss and despair and even feeling robbed by God. Typically British, Lewis felt uncomfortable opening openly expressing his emotions in public. Maybe some of you are like that. I know I tend to be like that. He was typically British, did not express his emotions in public. When his stepson, 14-year-old Douglas, who was Joy's son, uh, Douglas Gresham, when he came to his stepfather's home in the kilns after hearing about his mother's death, he opened the door and he saw Lewis, whom he called Jack, Lewis was standing by the fireplace. He was shocked by his appearance. He says these words, I had last seen him merely 10 days or so previously, but since that time, he had aged 20 years or more. His eyes had the look of a soul in hell. My brittle shell smashed and I broke. Oh, Jack, I burst out. And then the tears came. Jack rushed across the room and he put his arms around me and I held on to him and we both wept. That was the only occasion of which any physical demonstration of our love for each other ever occurred. Can you imagine that? The only occasion. Jack, I finally said, what are we going to do? He looked at me, his compassion for me showing through his own grief, and he said these words, just carry on somehow, I suppose, Doug. Well, somehow Jack, C.S. Lewis, and Doug did carry on, but Lewis was never the same. He had lost the joy of his, of his wife, of his life, and of course her name was Joy. He lost joy for everything in life. He carried his grief and sorrow deep inside him. He grieved silently and privately. And that's the saddest part because Lewis chose to unrope himself from other believers who could have helped him. Instead, he chose to write down his thoughts and feelings, and he filled four notebooks with his laments. Those notebooks eventually became a book called A Grief Observed. In that book, here's an excerpt. He says, what chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers we offered and all the false hopes we had.
not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking, but by hopes encouraged and offered to us by false diagnoses, by x-ray photographs, by strange remissions, by one temporary recovery we might have ranked as a miracle. Step by step, we were led up the garden path. Now, friends, I share this story. It's a sad story about the last years of C.S. Lewis's life to tell you this. Those aren't the words of an atheist. Those aren't the words of some bitter person uh, who rejected God and turned away from God. Those words come from the hurting heart of a towering giant of our Christian faith. Lewis's feelings reflect those of the prophet Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah uh, did a ministry of, of 40 years of his life all the way up until the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army and where many of the people in Jerusalem were either killed or led into exile. Jer Jeremiah was an old man. He was allowed to stay, but he wrote this terrible book of sadness called Lamentations. And in that book, thinking about life and what has happened and God and his relationship with God, Jeremiah wrote these words. He says, he, God, has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains. And though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. Friends, I don't know if there's been a time in your life where you felt like your prayers never made it past the ceiling, where you thought and wondered if God even cared for you anymore, if he was even listening to you anymore. He has blocked my way with a high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. You know, Lewis's stepson, Doug Gresham, he saw the toll and the grief that it had taken on Lewis's life. He says these words, it has been said that Jack's years at Cambridge after mother's death were happy. That is not true. Jack, when he was in company with his friends and colleagues, was after a while, he seemed like the jovial, witty intellectual they had known for years. But only Warney, who was Lewis's brother, whom he lived with, only Warney and I knew the effect that cost him. Warney knew it less than I, for Jack was even more careful with Warney. But me, I was more invisible. Jack's colleagues and friends never saw him as he turned from waving a cheery goodbye at the door of the kilns and casting some pearls of parting witticism to a departing guest. They never watched him suddenly slump, his whole body shrinking like a slowly deflating balloon, his face losing the light of laughter and becoming gray until he became once more a tired, sick, and grieving man, old beyond his years. You see, friends, after Joy's death, Lewis's life deteriorated physically, emotionally, spiritually, and socially, partly due to his British upbringing, partly due to his own natural reserve, partly because Lewis was a very private person, he chose to grieve alone. He concealed his true feelings, even from his closest friends, even from his own brother. And this was partly true, or this was partly because of the fact that 
When his wife Joy died and they had her funeral, there was only one friend. None of them ever explained to them why. They never told him why. Lewis never asked them why. But only one of his friends, Austin Ferrer, came to his wife's funeral. It hurt him deeply. He felt betrayed by them. He wrote, even Warney did not know. But many times I saw Jack unseen by him as he walked through his own Gethsemane. On his way to Warney's study, Jack would stop. He would take a breath. He would pull up his shoulders. He would raise his head and bring his facial expression under control. And then in a bold and cheerful countenance, he would step into the study with a glad cry of, tea, brother. Lewis died in November of 1963 happened to die the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. He was only a week shy of his 65th birthday. Although C.S. Lewis was a popular man with many friends, intimacy with those friends was difficult for him. How isolated he became from the very friends who could have pursued him, could have pushed through his reserve and privacy, could have tied a rope of encouragement and hope around his waist, but he wouldn't have it. I spent, friends, I want to say this. I've spent some time today talking about Lewis's painful journey so that we could learn something from his example, even if it's a negative example. What I want to say to you in reflecting on Lewis's final years is this. There are some things in life, friends, that we must do alone. But walking through the shadow of death is not one of them. It helps tremendously to mourn in community with others who feel the pain of our loss. As I said last week, friends, the truth is this. As life grows harder, you need your company of friends more, not less. Paul the Apostle puts it this way in Galatians. He says, carry each other's burdens. That's a command from God himself, friends. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. It is the Christian practice to help each other along life's journey, to rope ourselves to each other, to carry one another's burdens. Because why? A burden shared is often a burdened halved. You know, I, I've often wondered why some people choose to unrope themselves from everybody else. Why some people choose to go through this life by themselves. Why they isolate themselves. Why don't we go to God? Sometimes it, even in our own personal journey with God, why don't we go to God when we are in pain? Sometimes I think, friends, we don't go to God with our pain and troubles because we mistakenly think some thoughts about God, some thoughts that are just not true. One of the thoughts that some people think about God is when you're in pain, somehow we think somehow that God wants us to suffer. God wants us to suffer in those points. After all, God controls all things. I mean, after all, if God could change our circumstances, he would change our circumstances. It's as if God makes everything happen and everything bad that happened, God wants it to happen. Friends, that is not true. The perfect will of God is that we would all live 
by loving God with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors ourselves all the time. There will be a time in eternity when that takes place, when we're all trans, transmuted, we're glorified, we're, we're in a process of being sanctified now, but at some point that's going to be complete and we're going to be glorified with Jesus forever in heaven and it's going to be wonderful and there'll be no more sorrow or pain or tears. But friends, we live on a fallen, broken planet and that hasn't happened yet and God's permissive will is that the free will of man keeps playing out as God is trying to persuade us to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus. So I don't think God wants us to suffer. I don't buy that. Number two, sometimes we think God prefers us to be super positive all the time. And he doesn't want to hear us when we've got problems and troubles and complaints and pains. He doesn't want to be like that. If that were true, you'd have to throw out half of the Psalms. In, in the Old Testament book, because they're full of honest, emotional outbursts to God, full of pain and sorrow. Another reason why we don't go to God in our pain is because we're so tired. Sometimes we're just tired in the Christian life. We're just getting by on autopilot. And at that point, friends, we don't need fancy prayers. We don't need platitudes. We don't need long speeches. We just need to come before God in those moments and say, God, I'm tired. I really hate this. I need your help. How long did that prayer take? Not very long, right? And yet that was full of truth, full of emotion, full of sincerity. And that's exactly the way God likes our prayers to be. I'm tired. I really hate this, Lord. I need your help. Jesus' invitation is this. He says, come to me. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Friends, when you are hurting, would you please remember that Jesus also walked a pathway of pain and suffering. The prophet Isaiah described him this way. He said he was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with deepest grief. Jesus, the man of sorrows, he knows our pain. He knows our sorrows. He knows what it's like to suffer and to feel alone and rejected and abandoned. And so Jesus can sympathize with us in our weakness. He comes alongside us to help us right when we need it the most. And so in reply to coming to us when we're weary and heavy laden, what does Jesus offer us? He offers us his comfort and his rest. It's the kind of soul rest that leaves us feeling more alive and more at peace. We get that rest, friends, by coming to Jesus. We follow his way of life. We fulfill our created purpose before God when we do when we come to Jesus and follow his way. Friends, we find our way when we follow Jesus. Why? Because he is the way. You know, the Mandalorian almost got it right. So friends, the question remains as we move forward in 2021. Who are you roped to? You have to decide to voluntarily rope yourself to somebody else. That's how we're gonna get through this life. That's how we're going to climb the summit of what God has called us to climb in this year coming up, 2021. 
We've got to prepare yourself spiritually. And then number two, choose who you will climb together with. When I say that, choose who you will climb together with, there's two factors to that. You want to choose carefully who you will climb together with this Christian life in 2021. Why? Because first of all, you don't want to hold them back. And then secondly, you don't want them to hold you back. So you don't want to hold them back. You don't want them to drag you down either. And that's why, friends, that's why we have life groups in our church. It's not just gathering virtually on the weekends when we have our worship service. We gather either virtually online, some groups are meeting in person, practicing their social distancing, but we have life groups. We have about 10 or 12 of them, and I think there's one for you. 2021, friends, is the year for you to join a life group. You'll find real relationships. You'll experience life change and you will experience community as you voluntarily rope yourself to other believers. If you want in on that, friends, I, we have a men's group. We're starting this Tuesday with 2021 and our men's life group on Tuesday evenings at 6.30. There are plenty of other life groups besides that one. You want to get in on it? Email at info at sebchristian.com if you want to make that connection. The real bottom line, friends, is follow Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. When you rope yourself to Jesus, you are going to fulfill your created purpose before God, and you're going to find forgiveness and joy and happiness, and you're going to have God's word to guide you. You're going to have the Holy Spirit to indwell you, and you're going to have other believers to encourage you along that pathway. I hope you will make that choice today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, our Heavenly Father, you know better than we do that this Christian journey can be long. The trail can be steep and tiring and even treacherous. Thank you, Lord, for your word that guides us, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us and encourages us and guides us into all truth. Thank you for other Christ followers in this church family who can support us and we can support them. Lord, please forgive us when we choose to isolate ourselves, when we unrope ourselves. We try to go this life alone. Lord, help us to find other committed climbers in your family so that we can climb together and we can make the summit to where you are calling us to go. Help us to rope ourselves to you, Lord, first and foremost, to love you and follow you with all of our hearts. Help us, Lord, in this journey to keep on climbing together and to be full of faith and hope and love. And Father, we pray that 2021 will be a year that together, roped with other believers, with joy and faith and love, we can proclaim and we can make Jesus known everywhere. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory and honor that we pray these things. Amen.